You're listening to Healthy Discussions, a podcast supported by the Healthcare Leadership Academy, where we have conversations exploring big ideas in healthcare with our guests. I'm Zach Hassan, a junior doctor from Scotland. If you're interested in how we can make the health system better, then this is the podcast for you. On today's podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Laddie Smith, Director of Forensic Services at South London and Maudsley Foundation Trust and 2019 Psychiatrist of the Year. We discussed how criminality and mental illness can be traced back to adverse childhood experiences, the need for early intervention, and the role doctors should play in changing policy and preventing discrimination. I hope you enjoy. Laddie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Zach. Thank you. So um, I'm really glad you could join us because, you know, a forensic psychiatrist that works in intensive care, like that's objectively a really cool job. And um, I was just wondering, how how did you get into that? So um, I was uh, I became a consultant for the Brixton area. And, and um, when I became a consultant in 1999, we used to run a, a ward and also have a community team and uh essentially actually if you work in Brixton, Brixton is a very particularly at that time um it was a very busy area lots of mental health problems lots of deprivation and uh it meant that essentially um and also it's a high crime area as well so essentially that kind of qualifies you to become a forensic psychiatrist essentially but uh, after that, I then went and ran, uh, went and ran the um, intensive care unit, psychiatric intensive care unit at the Maudsley Hospital. Uh, and I did that for quite a few years. And during that role, we developed quite a few innovations, actually, because they're very much into the idea that, you know, if you can, you want to try and avoid people becoming highly disturbed and violent. And that's the reason why they're in intensive care because their mental health problems had resulted in them becoming aggressive and, um, you know, potential risk to others. But um, the idea that we had was to try and help people so that um, they didn't become so aggressive that they would hurt other people. So a lot of the work was really focused on trying to um, intervene before things um, got to the stage where someone ended up being aggressive and having to be restrained etc so we did a lot of work around that and um, then I was asked if I would go and help out at the forensic intensive care unit which was for this is for SLAM South London and Maudsley and that was based at the Beckham so I went over to help for a few weeks and ended up staying for a long time actually but um, and in fact actually I don't do that job anymore I've handed that over to somebody else because now I'm the clinical director of the service so I see. So you've kind of progressed from from doing that job into sort of more of a, a leadership role, um, kind of directing the the services. So, yeah. um, I mean, what was your average day like when you were actually, you know, doing the doing that job in the forensic intensive care? What is that like day to day? That's an interesting question. An average day. There wasn't an average day. Never, ever, ever boring. <laughs> We never did the same thing twice, other than, you know, there would be the ward round and there would be a management round and there would be, you know, the kind of daily daily rounds, things like that. But um, really, every day was quite different because, you know, it's very much a, about, um, you know, what people's needs were 
and so it's responding to people's needs, anticipating people's needs. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was exciting. There was always a bit of drama. Um, it was at the extremes of emotion, I would say, actually. There's, there was, it's interesting because people always think, oh, think about psychiatry, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. But there's a lot of happiness and there's a lot of joy, especially when you've got someone who's extremely mm-hmm. unwell. And um, one of the good things about being at the high end of, of psychiatry and the acute end is that people are extremely unwell and then they get better after a few weeks. And when they're well, they're really well and it's really rewarding. So you would really mm-hmm. get to see that that shift and that change in a way that you you don't see quite so readily in more uh, rehab psychiatry, rehabilitation psychiatry, where the shifts are the shifts are made, but they're much um, they're smaller and slower. So you don't mm-hmm. quite get the you know the kind of the more instantaneous rewards that you might get in in acute psychiatry. And uh, from from my experience in sort of working in, in adult hospitals, just as a, as a ward doctor, you know, kind of my main involvement with the psychiatrists is like uh, involved in decisions about deten- detention, basically. Mm-hmm. And should is this person's mental health condition bad enough that we need to keep them in hospital against their will or, you know, com- compel them to be treated? I'm just interested to know how how much a part of your job that is in forensic psychiatry and you know what are the differences about forensic psychiatry working in in the sort of with the justice system sure so actually a very similar thing happens in fact um we have to think very carefully about people's liberty actually and um of course a lot of our patients are have come to us via the criminal justice system but there's a whole heap of other ones but probably about uh you know a third of our patients at any moment in time who've actually um, come up from general services. And we know that anyway, about 74 to 75% of our uh, of patients in forensic mental health services are actually graduates from general mental health services. And then um, on the wards, uh, quite a significant proportion are detained under civil sections of the Mental Health Act as opposed to criminal sections of the Mental Health Act. So um, those decisions about whether or not a person should be detained in the first place and then subsequently whether whether they should be discharged or whether their detention should be renewed are are made all the time. And when it comes to forensic mental health, of course, you've got the additional input of, uh, in in the first instance, um, the courts uh, and also the Ministry of Justice and um in fact when we when most of I mean, i see a lot of patients now who have been referred from prison so a lot of the things i have to do is go and assess them and decide whether or not that person has got a mental health problem that means that they need to be transferred from prison to hospital so i don't think people always realize that uh you can't forcibly treat someone to you know with if they've got a mental health problem when they're in prison prison is just like being in the community and uh if you're in the community and you don't want to you know, you're unwell and it's felt you need to take treatment and you, you have a, you know, it's thought you don't, like, you don't have capacity, then, you know, it might be like, a, we think you need to come into hospital for treatment. It's the same thing for prison. So we do a lot of that, actually. And just the, the way that you were kind of talking about, you know, why you went into it and you're kind of wanting to intervene 
something that interested me, you know, made me want to invite you as a podcast guest was that part of what you seem to be saying was that a lot of the causes um, which leads your patients to, you know, require treatment are actually happening long before they get to you. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you meant by that. Yeah, so um, certainly by the time we see patients in forensic mental health, uh, it's usually they've been ill for a while and or, uh, and actually most importantly, the things that result in people coming into forensic services, i.e. having contact with the criminal justice system or having some kind of um, issue around violence, etc. Uh, problems that are usually to do with trauma that has happened much earlier in their lives. So um, there are often people who have, I mean, my patients are often people who've had uh, you know, in their in their childhoods, they've had um, emotional abuse, emotional neglect, huge amounts of emotional neglect, uh, physical abuse, sometimes sexual abuse, and um, you know, so these these adverse childhood experiences have have, have shaped mm-hmm. um, you know their development, and they've often grown up in you know difficult environments actually. Uh, yeah. with um, with parents who parents or caregivers who just weren't weren't either weren't enough for them and neglected them or as I say abused them hasn't been helped by the school situation because their problems haven't been noticed at an early age uh, they've kind of dropped off the conveyor belt if you like of life at a much earlier stage than you might do normally um, you know by the time they're in their early teens they're uh, using street drugs very regularly that increases their risk of mm-hmm developing mental health problems as well um they end up kind of falling foul of the criminal justice system very early often times and there are people who you look at them you sort of think you know if i'd met you when you were three or four years of age you might have been able to t- you know um help you divert from this trajectory into forensic mental health and um and increasingly i've been th- increasingly been thinking that our job as doctors and psychiatrists, it's not enough just to treat the illness in the person. To treat what you, you see in front of you. Yeah, we, we, yeah. really, we've got, we, we really need to start thinking more and more about, because we really want to make a difference, we've really got to start advocating for better support at a much earlier stage. Because the truth is that um, the costs in terms of um, the individual's uh, personal functioning. So they're not going to achieve their potential in terms of their, you know, educational functioning and um, uh, th- their individual social functioning is huge, right? So they're not, they're, they're just not going to achieve their potential. They're not going to, they're not really going to have an enjoyable life for the most part. The cost in terms of wider society is enormous as well. Because, um, you know, people that I look after are much more, obviously, they fall foul of the law, which means that somebody has been harmed in some way. Either, I mean, the patients I look after generally, it's because they've behaved in a violent way to somebody else or someone else's property. Mm-hmm. And then the cost, and there's a, there's, if, you don't, if you really don't care about these people and what might, what might happen to them, there's the actual cost of it. Because if you, and these are all, these are people who are young adults. The cost of, them looking at, you know, uh, the cost of them just being in care is huge. And, you know, the, so for mm. example, cost of 
someone coming into hospital uh, as a as as an informal patient is you know it's a few thousand pounds. It's about I think something like two. I think actually let me think. I think the cost of a community just community care generally is about two thousand pounds a year. The cost of someone having a, a an informal admission, it's probably about maybe double that. The cost of a, a formal admission, involuntary admission under a civil section is about £18,000. The cost of detention under a forensic section is in the region, conservative region, of about £350,000. So what... I mean, that's, that's more than the median sal- salary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a way more than the median salary, actually. And um, so what that tells you is that if you can do something to intervene, you know, if you can if you can intervene at a much earlier stage, so even if you were to divert ten percent of people away from forensic mental health care, then mm. the, the cost would be enormous, enormous. And uh, you know, we see our patients who sort of think, mm, yeah, we could have if only we'd met you when we were younger, or if only um, we'd been able to, you know, surround you with with services uh, in the community, say when you were seventeen or eighteen. You know, if only when you were at school, when it looked like you were this naughty kid and you were about to get excluded, if only someone had realised that actually this person's got some major emotional difficulties and if only they'd been surrounded Mm. at that point with interventions, then you wouldn't have ended up in forensic mental health care, costing huge amounts of money. And also, of course, if you're a young adult, just like you are, you are contributing to society and you will, you know, you contribute to society with the kind of job you'll do, but also you are going to um, pay lots of tax at some point, probably now and carrying on paying lots of tax. And so yeah. all that m- missing revenue to, you know, the coffers of, of society is problematic. So, you know, it's a huge cost in terms of personal, you know, personally, clinically, societally, and it's costly financially as well. So what you were talking about there, it sounds like there's there's multiple causes that are racking up here, you know, as people are going through childhood and early adulthood. And by the time they get to you, uh, there's already been so many kind of missed opportunities. I'm just very aware that a lot of these patients are coming into contact with multiple services. I'm wondering, you know, do you see any uh, understanding, you know, in the justice system or the education system, like, hey, wait a minute, if we exclude this person, we're actually denying them maybe support that they're needing, or if we give this person a custodial sentence, maybe we're denying the them the chance to, um, to get treatment for something that's going to become much worse later. Is there that understanding, um, or, or you know, is there are there um, a balance there? I'm not sure that there's a uh, systemic understanding of that. I'm pretty sure that if I were to talk to the individuals who work in each of those systems, there'd be people who would say similar things to me. But the systems that we have in place currently are um, not really working for these people that we're looking after primarily. And certainly the school system isn't really working for them. And, uh, you know, the criminal justice system, I, I, I think probably the criminal justice system, there's pretty good diversion, if you like. But you could argue that by the time someone's in the criminal justice system, it's already a bit too late. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I mean, particularly with my, you know, the people that we look after tend to be, you know, they're young men, basically, primarily. 
And uh, by the time they come to us, it's, it is a bit, we sort of feel like it's a bit too late now. And what we have to do is hope that, because that, we're in the kind of the, the business of secondary and tertiary prevention. So, mm-hmm. you know, by, um, what, this is what people don't realise. By the time they come to us, the deed has been done. Whatever it is that's happened for them to come to mm-hmm. us has happened. And we need to try and make sure that they are well enough and have enough understanding of their problems for it not to happen again. The difficulty is that, you know, we can give people medication and psychology and occupational therapy support and we can help them with housing, etc. But the, um, the foundations that mean, uh, you know, that mean that they are in a trauma, you know, they've had trauma that has shaped how they respond to other people and how they respond to institutions and various authority, etc. has already been, it's, it's been going on for years. And yeah. so those, there's something about the institutions and the structures that need to change to reduce the likelihood of these people having, uh, being in the position that they're in, that it means that they end up meeting people like me, actually. And so you kind of talked a little bit about kind of what a good outcome is in those circumstances. It's about, you know, preventing things getting worse, preventing uh, maybe, you know, reoffending, preventing um, kind of worsening of, of their mental health. I just wonder what patients themselves kind of say about these institutional factors. I'm especially interested in that because there's a kind of balance between taking the patient, you know, at face value and then also kind of seeing what they're saying through the context of well you know um we've sectioned you because you don't have capacity to make your medical decisions so i'm I'm interested to get your insights on that so i'm not sure that the patients really say much about uh they wouldn't necessarily say anything about oh the reason i'm here is because uh you know my my school was was rubbish and they didn't notice that I was you know emotionally neglected and traumatized when I was young that's not really what people say you know you ask them and they'll and they'll tell you that yeah school was a bit difficult and I was expelled when I was 11 things like that and you say why mm. what you were expelled really what did you do and they'll say well I used to get into trouble and things and things but they don't necessarily understand why would they when you're the 11 year old kid you yeah you don't necessarily recognise that... You don't join all those dots. No, you don't. You don't recognise that actually it's it's not okay for an 11-year-old child to be excluded. And if there's a problem with an 11-year-old child, then actually it means that the problem is a, is what's surrounding them and that there isn't mm-hmm. there isn't the sufficient support. Um, my patients definitely, you know, our patients definitely complain about the institutions that um, result in them being sectioned. And, you know, as you all know, there's plenty of complaint about the mental health system and it being Mm -hmm. unfair and particularly, you know, this disproportionate um, detention of black people, particularly in the higher end of um, care. People complain about access to mental health care at an earlier stage. They complain about the experience they have when they are in mental health services. And we know that outcomes are poor for black people as well. So um, there's lots of complaints. People don't like to be detained. Why would they? You know, no one wants to be detained against their will. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if that's all you've ever, ever known, then you're not going to think that it's abnormal. Um, you're not going to think that you're, you've grown up in an abnormal environment. Um, it seems like you're thinking about all these. You know, basically, the question I want to ask is what needs to change? You know, if, if you're sort of seeing the effects of this what do you think would work in terms of addressing some of those problems 
Do you know, um, that's a good question. I think one of the difficulties is that um, just in the way that um, if you've grown up in a difficult environment, that's just what's normal for you, right? And just as, you know, my parents say, you don't get it, Dr. Smith, this is just how it is. In, in much the same way, people who are in positions of power, I think some people just think, well, this is just how it is for these people, isn't it? You know, this person grew up in a, in a deprived area and deprived people have rubbish lives and it's their own fault for being deprived somehow. Mm. The reality is that the person who's in the deprived position is in a state of impoverishment. And I don't just mean that they're poor. I mean that they are, they are poor in terms of not having a voice. They are poor in terms of not having power to effect change in their own lives. Unless they've got some incredible talent, like, you know, they're a brilliant footballer and they're lucky enough to have gone to some football scheme when they were eight and some person spotted that they're a brilliant footballer and lo and behold, you've got Marcus mm. Rashford or something like that. But most people don't have that. And it's, and it's not fair that if they're in a position of, with little power, that someone who's in a position of power should not then make the effort uh, to try and change the structures that mean that those people who are in this position of deprivation and impoverishment and marginalization, that those people aren't supported. So mm -hmm. to my mind, it's incumbent upon those of, who are in power, and that includes doctors, Doctors often yeah. don't realise that we're in positions of power. It doesn't feel like it, especially when, you know, we, we get dictated to and stuff like that in our work. But the fact is that we are in positions of power and we can make a change. And, um, you know, and of course, there are people in positions of much greater power than us who are policymakers who can make a difference in terms of the policies that are changed. And mm -hmm. what doctors can do is advocate for patients, we can we can do huge amounts on an individual level, but we can in, certainly with my patients. I can only it doesn't matter how brilliant a psychiatrist I am, unless my patient if I if I treat my patient and then they go back to exactly the same kind of environment that you know with poor housing and you know they don't have enough money and they're scrimping and scraping etc as before, then the outcomes are going to be the same. Mm -hmm. So but you've, you've given them a sticking plaster, but not actually kind of addressed what what injured them. Exactly, the exactly, place. exactly. So there's something about advocating for systemic change to reduce the likelihood of these mm -hmm. worse outcomes in the long term. And increasingly, I think that um, I mean, I, you know, if you if you talked to me about this 20 years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but with that, I'm absolutely sure now. Part of what our job should be as doctors and certainly certainly in, in mental health, um, but I'm pretty sure in most with most medicine, medical specialities really, part of what we should be doing is actually advocating for systemic change so that there are fewer poor, you know, the, so that there are fewer people coming with poorer health. Simple as that. Mm -hmm. I mean you look at if you look at poverty level poverty is associated with poor health, full stop. Poverty is associated with obesity. Poverty is associated with um, you know, worse outcomes when people get cancer. Poverty is associated with greater infant mortality. So it's pretty, you know, you can be the best doctor you want to be, but actually a better mm. thing would be to lobby, <laughs> lobby, you know, your local MP so that they can do something to reduce, you know, to make sure that there are policies that mean that there's slightly less poverty so there's going to be fewer poorer health outcomes. I see. So you're kind of you're really seeing this as kind of coming very from very upstream. There needs to be, you know, 
action outside the healthcare sector on a political level to try and address some of these kind of root social causes. Um, I want to come back to something you said about you know the the kind of the inequality, the the race inequality, and the wealth inequalities in the in the prison system. And I want to know about. I just want to understand a bit more about where is that um, discrimination happening? Is it happening inside healthcare or outside healthcare, or you know, is it more in one place than another place? You know. Where, where, if we wanted to kind of, you know, focus on a priority, where would that be? Where do we start working on this problem? Well, that's a good question. So, um, discrimination is a societal problem. Uh, I know that some people would like to think, oh, yeah, it exists just in that person, or it just exists in that institution. That's not true. Um, we know that there are various. Uh, types of discrimination and it's born out of prejudice you know discrimination is behavior that's associated with prejudice mm -hmm. everybody has prejudice and there are so everybody has but there's an you know these individual prejudices and some people meet the mass against others and they discriminate against other people for whatever reason because of their race or because of their sexuality or the gender whatever um but that that kind of individual discrimination is is not the is it's important but it's it's on an everyday level it's not the thing that really makes a difference to the this disproportionate mm -hmm. rates of um you know detention and mental health you know mental health care or in healthcare for example um there is uh, structural discrimination and institutional discrimination and that happens in all that that structural discrimination is you know it's in the historical structures that we have in our society so that's not just about mental health care that's not just about health care that's society full stop there are institutional discriminatory factors that happen within the different institutions and collectively those institutions unfortunately end up upholding some of the structural discriminations that we see and mm -hmm. um so it's funny because there's lots of focus on mental health care because it's really obvious in mental health care that, that there have been this, you know, this disproportionate rates of um, detention in the Mental Health Act. And that's been highlighted because of the Mental Health Act review that, um, that I was involved with. And, mm -hmm. um, but and it's interesting that I think, actually, because psychiatry is perhaps one of the more, um, you know, it's one of the more scrutinized branches of, of medicine. It's, it's, you know, it means that people have had to really reflect and think much more carefully. And it's probably, I think, one of the least racist bits of, of health, actually. What mm -hmm. um, if, you know, people are really going to look very carefully at um, obstetrics and gynecology or cardiology, then what you'd find is that there are significant discrepancies in, in, you know, in healthcare experience and outcomes there too. We, and we, in fact, we see it in obstetrics, where, you know, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're um, from a um, uh, BME background, if you're um, black or brown female, you are much more likely to die in childbirth in, in the UK. I mean, that's just, you know, something like five times more likely to die in childbirth. That's just incredible. What's that about? And is that explained by any other factors like wealth or um, the kind of, you know, uh, educational, uh, you know, attainment? Or is, you know, 
do we know that that race is a kind of independent factor in in that or is it just something that we need to explore a bit more so the thing about race is that uh, race isn't independent of wealth uh, mm-hmm. certainly not in the uk and it, it will also say ethnicity and the problem is that you know people often uh, lump everyone together as though being um uh, black or brown is a homogenous thing and it's not um we know for example that um, if you look at uh, South Asian people, if you are from an Indian South Asian background, then you're likely to be just as rich, if not richer, probably, than um, a white British, per- you know, white British background. If you're Bangladeshi, you're South Asian person from Bangladeshi background or Pakistani background, then actually your levels of wealth are really quite low. For some of the poorest people in the country, uh, you know, you're if you're Bangladeshi, you or you're black, black. Caribbean or Black African, you're really unlikely to own your own home. And mm-hmm. um, we, you know, whereas if you're Indian, South Asian, you're very likely to, you're much more likely to own your own home, just as likely as a white British person. So you, you can't separate those, you can't separate those factors, actually. Um, the question mm-hmm. really should be more about why is it that uh, certain types of brown people, certain types of black people are much less likely to have money and much more likely to go to a rubbish school, you know, much more likely to be in a in um, poor quality employment, or much more likely mm. to be unemployed. And this, this, it, oftentimes people try and say, well, it's it's individual factors. It's just because you're not, you know, good enough, or you're not, you know, you you're too lazy, or whatever it is. But it's it's just not as simple as that. There are undoubtedly some structurally discriminatory factors. That make it harder for certain groups of people to progress in life and those structures that keep people marginalized um so work to continue continue to marginalize people mm-hmm. so people are less likely to have a voice if you if you have less money you have less power you have less power you have less of a voice simple as that you know uh you can't influence governmental policy in the same way so for example you know, you have equipment, you have the podcast, you're able to, you've got, you've got a voice, you've got, you've got some say. That's, if you don't have this equipment, you don't have, um, you don't have the kind of education, then you have less of a say, you know, simple as that. And, and, you know, and that's part of why I wanted to, to make the podcast, because, you know, I kind of, I've been thinking, you know, there's lots of issues that you see in, in the healthcare system, as a junior doctor, you don't always feel able to do very much about them. Um, you know, so why not kind of use some skills to to try and, you know, at least make a, make a start or, you know, at least talk about the issues. That's kind of, that that really hit home for me. I want to ask you just one more thing about this kind of um, point about discrimination because I think my assumption sort of coming into this topic was thinking that discrimination is going to be one way it's going to be kind of right where they're going to be locking up more uh you know ethnic minority people they're going to be diagnosing them more with mental illness that they don't have so i was really interested to see in the mental health review that you were part of that part of why um you, or something that you were critical of was that um a, a panel had kind of not detained somebody who was uh, sort of deemed to be a risk because they were afraid of appearing racist and I was wondering if the discourse in the UK at the moment around um, you know uh, 
politics of you know ethnic identity is you know is there a kind of a bat a kind of counter racism of kind of the wrong decisions being made because of a fe- uh, you know appearing to be racist uh, and that's actually hurting the the patient at the end of the day so um just to be clear that was something that was discussed years and years ago so i think okay. that uh, that statement was made that was when uh, i was on the es once that would have been about that would have been about 2005 2006 so quite have, historic. That's okay. historical. And things have changed a lot since then. And people have a lot better understanding. So these were in, that was in the days when, I th- certainly, you know, long before COVID and George Floyd. And um, in the last, even before that, actually, but what we know now is that people, everyone has a better understanding about, um, I hope anyway, about systemic factors that engender discrimination. And people, a lot, a lot more people have done the reflecting and the ref, uh, uh, reflecting on their own levels of discrimination. And that's everybody, actually, and their own mm-hmm. understanding of the structural discrimination in the world in which we live. Um, what it means is that people have been better able to own their um, you know, the innate prejudice that they might have and to work through it a bit better. And everyone's, it's a journey and everyone's at different stages of journey. Historically, people could only, you know, couldn't even begin to voice that. They would either be a racist or not, simple. What they were not able to understand are the nuances and the different types of racism and stuff that we have better. Well, well it's just been publicised more so people I hope have better understanding of that than they used to I mean you know lots of people still don't get it and we and even people in our government don't really get that and say all sorts of things that are just not really that helpful um is is there I mean I, I think it's I think what happened then is less likely to happen now because I think that people are more likely to take advice actually and to think a bit more carefully about why it is they're making their decisions and you know i would hope i you know that was a particular panel but uh there we go you know they 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 react i mean i'm sure there are still panels who would just react very carefully you know they would be worried that they might be seen to be racist if they didn't discharge someone mm-hmm. but i think um you know, I think, I hope, I hope that there would be more nuance in their thinking nowadays. I'm, I'm really heartened to hear that you think things have, have changed in that regard. So, um, yeah, that, that gives me some reassurance. Um, so what can we do as, as doctors? Um, you know, you spoke about us having a voice and having power. I'm just thinking, you know, what can we, uh, you know, do as doctors with our careers? Is it about trying to address some of the the evidence gaps? Is it about trying to be more aware of our own uh, bias or, you know, or something else that you see as important? All of the above. First and foremost, be the best doctor you can be, actually. And, um, you know, know your stuff as best as possible. But, you know, good doctors recognize that we don't know everything. And that you've always, you're never going to be able to learn everything. There's always so much to learn. Good doctors recognise that uh, the, the person sitting in front of them is an, is an individual, and 
doesn't make judgments about them based on the way they look and finds mm. out about that person. And, uh, and also good doctors recognize that people live, you know, if you get to know an individual, then you'll learn about the context within which they live. And if you understand better about the context within which a person lives, then you understand better about what treatments are going to be more beneficial and how that person can respond to that treatment within the context of their life. So there's no point, you know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you fix someone's hip, you think that's the best job I've ever done. Beautiful, fantastic. But actually, the person lives lives on the sixth floor of a council block and um, the lift doesn't work ever. Then the fact is that, you know, getting the physiotherapy they need and, you know, ensuring that the work that you've done continues to, you know, that their hip heals appropriately, um, you know, that's, it's, it's not going to happen the same way as if they live in a nice leafy house and they've got access to private physiotherapy and all the rest of it, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's something about understanding the context in which people live. And then also when you have the opportunity making the, you know, talking to your social care colleagues and your local authority colleagues and actually trying to influence local policy so that it better benefits mm. the patients that you look after. And as, as a clinical director now, do you feel like you've got access to more levers to try and influence some of these things? Or, you know, is it still, you know, is there still a kind of sense of, um, you know, not have not being able to control the things you want to be able to control? Well, obviously, you know, I can't control everything, but I certainly have more access to... Um, or more influence on the ears of people who might make it, who might make a difference. So, um, you know, people are more likely to listen to your advice, but also you're more likely to be in a room where there are people who you might be able to influence, if that makes sense. I think the mm. other thing is that you don't have to be a clinical director to be in that situation. Um, I mean, one of the things that I wasn't properly aware of when I was younger was the importance of, of policy decision-making and, um, you know, I, and this is just, the, you know, because of the way that we're uh, trained, I suppose, or were trained, which is very much about, you know, you as a, an individual, individual practitioner working with an individual patient. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was only, it's only really only been in the last few years that I've properly understood how um, decisions made by commissioners about, you know, the policy, local policy, and national policy has such an impact on people's health outcomes. And mm. um, I think junior doctors now, I hope, have a better understanding of that, actually, and that we're you know, teaching people more about that. And I would urge people to try and get involved in um, policy work and under certainly understand about policy and how policy is made at mm. an early stage. And that's, I think, something that we can start doing better in terms of training people. I know that I talk to people about policy now in a way that um, wasn't, I, you know, my um, uh, supervisors didn't talk to me about policy when I was, when I was training in the same way. It, it, and maybe because it was different, but um, certainly policy decisions are really important in terms of the healthcare that we deliver. 
Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad that you're sort of nearer the conversations where, you know, those decisions are being made. Um, just coming to the end now. So um, I usually finish by asking if, uh, you know, you'd like to recommend a book that was, you know, influential on you or that you think people should go and read um, if they want to find more about some of the issues that we've been talking about. <laughs> the things that are going through my, funny enough, actually, the things that are going through my head are actually... Uh, um, Ray, I was thinking about Ray Bradbury books actually is really but it's probably not that it's not that yeah I actually think people should read Ray Bradbury uh, and um, I think they should uh, read some Margaret Atwood actually because um, the policy changes all the time but what um what influences policy is having uh, what's going to influence policy for the better is having a good understanding about how people treat each other and what can happen if people don't treat each other properly. And I think um, Ray Bradbury and uh, some Margaret Atwood would help people to understand a bit better about what, how to treat people because I think the thing is that at the moment I generally am always being asked about uh, you know um, ethnic inequality and not so much about policy stuff but actually it's, I'm glad you asked me about the policy stuff really because because I, I really do think that um, you know probably about 20% of our work at least should be advocating for our patients in a, a mm. policy level and um you know that's what i'd quite like to see really that um you know that happens as, as doctors and people would be like groaning i'm sure but if we did that it'd be i just, just think it would just be better clinically but also it'd be a lot cheaper for everybody i mean it really was yeah. it's, it's, it's a win-win actually really you know yeah okay well thanks very much for speaking to me laddie been a pleasure yeah very welcome thank you very much for having me if you like the podcast the best way to support it at this stage is to tell your friends about it and share it on social media you can use the hashtag healthy discussions or my twitter handle at monterey zach to tell me your thoughts about this episode in the description you'll find more about our guests work and their book recommendations Thanks to Health Education England North East, Health Education England South West and Medics Academy for supporting this episode. All of us at the Healthcare Leadership Academy are grateful for their support.